Well, church, we are wrapping up our series um, this morning called Gifted for Love. And so as we wrap up this series, as you can tell from the chapter that we just read, we're going to do some heart work this morning. Uh, and so hopefully this series, throughout the, the about eight weeks that we've been in this series, hopefully uh, it's done a few things for you. Hopefully it's piqued your interests uh, about the, the gifts of the Spirit. I hope that it has helped you to understand your role in the body of Christ, and it's given you uh, more of a corporate outlook as a church, right? That we are not here for ourselves, that we are not here individually. We are here as a body, one for another, and we all have gifts that the Lord has given us, and He has given us those gifts specifically for the purpose of building up the church. So we want to walk in these doors on a Sunday morning, uh, as I said a couple weeks ago, just with that kind of mindset of, Lord, how can I help? How can I encourage a brother? How can I encourage a sister? And and I said, you know, we sometimes walk into the church with this view that I'm here for me. I need to be built up. But what happens actually is when we come here looking outward, looking at brothers and sisters and going, Lord, well, how can I help? What can I do? We end up getting built up. And that's just how uh, the Lord works through his people. And so as we end this series, I want to talk about and I want to ground everything that we've covered in the most important pursuit that Paul talks about. And we covered this a little bit last week when we covered uh, chapter 14, verse 1, where Paul says, pursue love. Right, so Paul says, pursue love, and then he spends an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, explaining what love is. And so I think if John 3.16 is the most popular verse in the Bible, then 1 Corinthians 13 is probably the most famous chapter in the Bible. Everybody knows 1 Corinthians 13, and as Ali said, it's you know, one of the most popular uh, scriptures that's used at weddings, whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian. And that's because of the beauty of how Paul presents love. It is beautifully written. But what we have to understand is that in Paul's immediate context of what he's talking about love, it actually has nothing to do with marriage. It has everything to do with the body of Christ and how we are to relate to one another, and how we are to use our gifts. And so, as I say that, that doesn't negate the fact that it can be used in marriages, and it can be used in weddings, because the principles that Paul lays out here are for all of life, right? But immediately, he is talking about our role in the body of Christ, and what he's trying to do in 1 Corinthians 13, and he's, he's trying to demonstrate what love is, for a church, the Corinthian church, that had completely lost it. That had completely lost sight of the purpose of everything that they were doing. Right? We talked last week how they'd been, they'd been uh, elevating the gift of tongues above everything out and per else and pursuing that. And they were just practicing the gifts of the Spirit for the sake of practicing the gifts of the Spirit. They weren't doing it for love of one another and building up the church the way that we are supposed to. And so Paul says to them at the end of chapter 12, he says, listen, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Like, earnestly pursue the gifts, but I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And that is the way of love. And so this morning's message, I've just kind of broken it up into three parts. First part is just, what is love? And then second part, we're going to talk about the danger of hollow behaviors. And then lastly, we're just going to kind of walk through this more excellent way that Paul lays out for us in 1 Corinthians 13. And so, what is love? And listen, if you ask that question, 
in our day and age, you are going to get a lot of different answers. There is a lot of different definitions about what love means in our day. And it is a word that gets thrown around a lot in our culture. We use it for everything. Right? Like you can simultaneously love your spouse and love pizza. Hopefully not the same kind of love. Right? Or there's a problem there. Right? But, but we say we love so many different things. And, and I think the more that we use it and the ease with which it leaves our mouth and our culture, it kind of dilutes the meaning of love. But, but the Bible takes love so seriously. The Bible takes love so seriously, in fact, that the Greeks had to actually invent a word to capture the biblical meaning of love. So the Greeks have four words to try and capture what love means. The the first word is this word storgi, and if you're a a Greek fanatic in here, I may have pronounced that wrong, I don't know, storgi or storgi, but I should have looked it up beforehand, uh, how to pronounce it, but Storgai basically means affection. It's the kind of love that we feel for an animal. It's the kind of love that we feel for pizza or whatever your favorite food is. And then there's eros, right? That's sexual and physical love. And then there's phileo, which the the English word Philadelphia comes from. And so what's the, the, the city Philadelphia? What are they known for? City of brotherly love. And that's exactly what phileo means. It means brotherly love. And so when we talk about phileo, it's the kind of love that's an agreement between two people. Like, hey, you treat me well, I'm going to treat you well. And so that's what brotherly love is. And then the New Testament came along, and this new concept of love came along that the apostles are talking about, and the Greek didn't have any category for this kind of love. And so they had to come up with a fourth word. And that word is agape. Agape love. And that is God's love. That is biblical love. And what agape means is that it is a love that gives simply for the sake of giving. It is a love that means action towards another person. It is a love that seeks the well-being of someone else regardless of their response to you. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. It's not about how they respond to you. You're still to love them. Isn't that what God did for us? Right? While we were yet sinners, He loved us. Jesus died for us. It is a love that gives without expecting anything in return. It is the kind of love that when you come across someone in need, you give, not expecting, I'm going to get something back from them. This is the kind of love that agape describes. And it is seen most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. John Corson, I love what he says in his commentary. He says, the love we are to extend to one another is spelled one way. S-A-C-R-I-F-I-C-E. Sacrifice. The love we are to extend to one another is spelled one way. Sacrifice. So agape love is seen most clearly in the cross of Christ. But agape love is also something that we see and we experience every single day. And we see it in the form of common grace. 
The reality is that whether you acknowledge God, whether you acknowledge Jesus, you wake up in the morning and you have breath in your lungs, that is a gift from the Lord. You have food to eat, you have shelter, that is a gift from the Lord. That is a God who gives regardless of the millions and millions of people who do not acknowledge that that gift comes from Him. That's agape love. It's what we call common grace. We all enjoy it, whether we acknowledge God or not. He's a God who gives. And so agape love is what Paul has in mind here when he speaks about love. And it was something that was completely lacking in the church in Corinth. And he wanted to captivate people's minds and bring them to this better way because they'd fallen into this danger that we can fall in in the church. And in the church in Corinth, they'd fallen into this danger of hollow behaviors. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13:1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So Paul begins here with the gift of tongues because the church in Corinth had so elevated it above the other gifts. And so he says, listen. You may be able to speak in tongues, but if you're just doing it to do it, if it's not rooted in love, you're a noisy gong. You're a clanging cymbal. Like he's basically just saying, you're annoying, right? Like picture like a, a kid with cymbals just walking around, smashing them together, right? It's awful. What Paul's trying to show them here, though, is he's trying to teach them, listen, uh, behaviors or gifts not rooted in love are not done for the right reason. They're hollow. They don't mean anything. So he confronts the church in Corinth. He says, there's a better way. Love one another. And there's a, an important principle here that, that we see in his confrontation of the church. Because when we're confronted by something, the way that Paul confronts the church in Corinth about the practice of tongues, or when we're confronted about something in our lives, we actually have two choices that we can make. There's always two choices when we are confronted by something. One, we can harden our hearts and continue our own way, or we can do what Paul describes and take the better way, the more excellent way, the way of love. So the church in Corinth, these people who were practicing tongues just for the sake of it, they had a choice to make. Would they harden their hearts to the detriment of the church, or would they choose this more excellent way of love? And the more excellent way of love, regardless of, of what way you're coming at it, you always come at it from a place of humility and a place of repentance. And so the question would be, would the church turn from its ways? Would it turn to love? Would it repent of its ways? 1 Corinthians 13.2, Paul continues. It's not just tongues. He says, listen, if, if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And Paul's pointing out a danger of prophecy and a danger of the, the gift of faith being practiced apart from love here. See, he's saying, listen, if you have the gift of prophecy, you're shown mysteries, right? You receive knowledge from God. If you have the, the gift of faith, you know, you may see and do miraculous things through the power of the Spirit. 
And what can happen if we see those things, if we experience those mysteries of God without being rooted in love? Well, we get puffed up. We get conceited in our gift. And so Paul's saying, listen, you've got to be rooted in love. He's saying you can know everything. You can know all the secrets of heaven. You can do miraculous things. You can move that mountain from there to there. But if it's not rooted in love, you could be thought of as the greatest prophet, the greatest miracle worker amongst men. But I'll tell you what God thinks. Nothing. He thinks nothing of it. You know, one of the realities that we have to fight as human beings, as fallen human beings, is our love for position. Is our love for status. In fact, we sometimes do things just for position, just for status, just for influence. And God would say, listen, when you do something for that motivation, you're nothing. It counts as nothing. We see this kind of struggle. The disciples themselves struggled with this. To want to be in a position without considering the love that considers to be in that position. We see in Matthew chapter 20, that the mother of the sons of Zebedee come up to Jesus and, and she asks, she says, and sorry, he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. They wanted position. They wanted power. They wanted status. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Little did they know, right? They said, well, yeah, we're able. <laughs> no, you're not. The cup that Jesus had to drink was the cup of suffering, was the cup of sacrifice. Right? Jesus said the greatest love is to lay down your life for another. So as human beings, we, we have this pull to want position, to want status. But God is the one that gives position and status. We are to pursue love. Verse 3, he continues, he says, If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So generosity. We know that we're called to be generous as followers of Jesus. And this is something that we see very clearly in the early church. We see in Acts 2, verse 45, it says they were selling all their possessions. They were selling all their belongings. They were distributing their proceeds to all as any had Need. And so we know that we are to live generous lives. But we could sell all that we have. And if it's not from a heart of love, again, it's, it's nothing. It's just an action. And then Paul goes to the most extreme thing that you can think of. So you can lay down your life. You can become a martyr. And without love, you gain nothing. Now, for us, when we read that, it's hard for us to fathom. Like, wait, you're telling me that someone would actually lay down their life just for the wrong reasons, for status, for whatever it might be? In our culture, that's crazy. But what we have to understand is that dying used to be viewed as virtuous. It used to be viewed as a virtuous thing to lay down your life. And especially if you're confident of where you're going. You're going to be with Jesus. You're going somewhere better anyway. So it was this virtuous thing to lay down your life. It's not seen that way now, is it? 
We don't have that kind of view anymore. We're terrified of death. Even Christians are terrified of death. I think it's because we have way too many treasures on earth. We have way too many things that we look to here. And we have way too small of an understanding of what we have waiting for us in heaven. Of what Jesus has won for us. There was a time when someone may lay down their life. And not for the right reasons. Ultimately what Paul is saying is he's reflecting the greatest commandment. He's saying, listen, everything that we should do should be rooted in the greatest commandment. Mark 12, 30-31. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is what Paul's saying in his own words. And he says, when we don't do that, when we don't do things from that kind of motivation, I'm just noise, I'm nothing, and I gain nothing. Ouch, Paul. That hurts. But it's an important principle. And the principle is this, that God cares about our hearts as the first priority. First priority is our hearts, and then our actions. So Paul is exhorting not only the church in Corinth, he is exhorting Christians throughout the age, including every one of us here this morning, beware. Beware of the danger of empty gestures. Beware of the danger of hollow behaviors. Beware of your motivations. Because there is a danger that you can do what seems good and what looks good, and it might not actually be good. So let me give you an example. Uh, This is easy for me to come to mind because I've got four of them. But uh, a good example is the discipline of children. I got four of them, so I have to discipline well, or else chaos in our house. So we got to be on top of it. But you can have different motivations for disciplining your kids. The first motivation is that you love them. You want what's best for them. You know that you need to discipline them in order to set them up properly for life, in order for them to be successful, in order for them to understand kingdom things and understand that God disciplines dad when he does things wrong. And God will discipline you as you get older. You have to answer to your heavenly father the way you answer to me. And so I want to discipline you well because I love you and I want to set you up for life. But you know what? We can also discipline our kids because we want people to think good of us as parents. We can discipline our kids because successful children Affirm me. Look what I did. It gives me value. And that is a wrong motivation. One is loving. The other is selfish. They look the exact same on the outside. People would never know. But God does. And he accepts one. And he confronts the other. John Piper, he says it this way when it comes to actions. He says, I just don't get excited about behaviors in and of themselves. God has to enter in here. How do you feel about God? Why are you doing this? What does it have to do with God? It might be sheer idolatry. 
So I'm not into behaviors as the goal. I'm into God and how you are passionately engaged with Him. And if I see your behavior as expressing that, then I will love it and I will worship Him with you for that. I love what Piper says there. He's like, it's not about what we do. It's about our love for God and what flows from our love for God. And so when we recognize that in each other, we just celebrate that and we worship God for that. That's what we're after. I want to see the love of God just pouring out of every part of all of us all the time. Like, I know why you're doing that. You love Jesus and you love people. It's never about status. It's never about looking good. It's just about love. That's the more excellent way that Paul's talking about. So we could go back to verse 1 and 3 of 1 Corinthians 13 again, and, and we could read it differently. Right? Paul would say, I want you to speak in tongues out of love. Right? I want you to have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains and even give up all you have and deliver your body if necessary for love. It's not that I don't want you to do those things. I want you to do them for the right reasons. And then Paul starts to break down for us this beautiful section about what love is. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is what agape love is. Paul says love is patient and kind. Now when Paul says patient there, what he's saying is love is not short-tempered. Love is long-suffering. It shows restraint. That is an incredibly God-like quality. To have patience, to be long-suffering, to show restraint. God says of Himself in Exodus 34, 6, when He passes before Moses, He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Can you imagine how long-suffering God is? I know how long-suffering God is with me. And He has to deal with all of you and everybody else in this world. He is long-suffering. He is patient. Jesus has not returned yet, not because God is slow, This is giving people time. He wants all to come to repentance. He is long-suffering. That's what we're called to. That's what love is. That doesn't mean that we don't confront sin. That doesn't mean we're like, oh, everything's fine, it's good. No, we confront sin. We don't confront sin to crush people. We confront sin to bring to repentance, to lift them up out of the muck and out of the mire that they are stuck in the same way that Jesus lovingly did for every single one of us if you're a follower of Jesus. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not jealous. It is not prideful. James says it shows no partiality. 
Right? We, we envy and we boast when we start showing partiality. Well, I'm better than that person. Oh, I wish I had what that person had. No. Love shows no partiality. Whether you have more or less, it doesn't matter. Love you the same. That's challenging to do. That's challenging to do as fallen humans. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love is not self-seeking. That means that we are not out for ourselves. Whether it be in our families, whether it be in our workplaces, whether it be in our church, we do not live for ourselves. We've been bought for a price. We live for Jesus and we live for others. So it is not self-seeking. There is only a few, a handful of times when love actually insists on its own way. Love insists on its own way when it is good for the whole, when it is good for others, when the glory of God is in question, when the truth of the gospel is at stake, then you insist on your own way. But beyond that, we don't. Love is not irritable or resentful. You know what that means? Love does not count up wrongs. Love does not keep a record in your back pocket. Spouses. Love does not count wrongs. It doesn't keep a record of past sins. You want to see a marriage that's struggling? I will show you a marriage where someone has not forgiven the other person. And every time you get in a fight, oh, look what you've done. You cannot thrive in a marriage like that. It won't work. Love does not keep count of wrongs. If you want to thrive in your marriage, that's one of the most important things. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, does not rejoice at evil. You know, sadly, this is a big problem in the church right now. Churches all over the place rejoice in evil now. They rejoice in wrongdoing. And it is not loving. It is not loving at all. And that's why Paul says, we don't rejoice in wrongdoing. We rejoice in the truth. And God's word is the guardrail for what is true. So we rejoice in what God says is good and what God says is right. And we pursue and we show love based on God's word. Paul goes on to say, it's so beautiful what love is able to do. He says, love is able to bear all things. You know what bear all things means? It means cover. It means protect. First Peter 4.8, above all, Peter says, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love puts up with. Love does not put someone away easily. Love does not easily say, you know what? I'm sick of you. I'm done. Love bears with. Love covers. Love does not publicly shame someone else's sin. Again, so you don't get me wrong, that does not mean excusing sin at all. There are times where it is necessary to call it out. Absolutely. 
Love believes all things. You know what that means? It means trust. It means trust. It's this, this quality that allows for seeing the best in others in every circumstance. It doesn't mean that you're fooled. It doesn't mean that you've had the, the wool pulled over your eyes. But what it means is that we don't assume the worst. We don't assume the worst in every situation. And so a great question to ask ourselves is, what do we fill the gaps with? Right? When we have an expectation, whether it's of a friend or a spouse or workplace, and they fall short of that expectation, what are we filling the gap with? Are we filling the gap with trust, with, with love, or are we filling the gap with doubt? You go, yeah, of course. Of course they would. They would fall short of that. What do we fill the gap with? How do we respond when we're let down by people? Love hopes all things. What does that mean? It means it looks forward. But again, it doesn't, you're not looking backwards. Love is looking forward. It's, it's hope. Right? It's, yes, acknowledging reality. We're not living in some you know, cloud world where it's like, everything's great all the time. Sunshine, rainbows. Like, that's not what it is. We live in reality. We acknowledge reality. We acknowledge failure. But we also understand that failure is not the final thing. We also understand that ultimately God wins. That God, God's grace wins. And so we always look forward in hope and go, I know that failure is not the final answer in Jesus Christ. There is always hope in Jesus Christ. And God wins. When you have that kind of mindset, then you can do the last thing that Paul says, endure all things. Love is steadfast. It was talking about fortitude. It's that, that idea of a soldier on the battleground that's like, I am not giving up. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep fighting. Right? That's what love does. Paul continues in verse 8, probably the most beautiful thing that he says, love never ends. Love that. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth specifically, is he's saying, listen, all these gifts that you're elevating above love, they're not going to last. Like, when you come before Jesus, you're not going to be like, look all my gifts, Jesus. He's going to be like, yeah, I gave them to you. Right? You're going to come before Jesus and go, look how I loved. Look what I did from love. That's what we're going to come before Him with. We'll be judged mainly on how we lived out the first commandment. The greatest commandment. Love God, love people. He continues in verse 9 to 12. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What a beautiful line that is. I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should just rest in that line right there. That is a beautiful, beautiful line. 
Paul's comparing the difference between what we experience now, this, this partial understanding of things. He, he illustrates it using the, the picture of a child. Right? When I'm a child, I think like a child. You know, I don't fully understand things. But then when I become a grown man, hopefully I understand things better. I see things more clearly. And that's what Paul's saying. Listen, right now, we see partially. We, get, we don't see everything. We don't fully understand everything. But when we go to be with Jesus, we will see fully. And we will understand. Right now we look in a mirror dimly. Our knowledge of God is imperfect. We know Him in part. But we will be face to face. And we will know fully, even as right now, we are fully that's just, like, there, there should be nothing more comforting to you if you understand what that means. Like, if you understand that God fully knows you, like, all your, all your failures and all the things that you've done that you've been ashamed of, and maybe even all the secrets that you hold that maybe other people don't know, and God knows it fully, and, and His response to you still is, I love you. Like, I sent my son for you. My grace is over you. It just reminds me of that idea of like what, what, what can be done to us? Right? What can be done to us if we understand the fact that God knows us fully? Who can say a word against me? Nobody. God knows me. Who can come against me? Absolutely nobody. Because I've got the love of God and he, he knows who I am. Like there is nothing more secure than that. Paul ends with verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul's saying these are the eternal things. Faith, hope, and love. And they're, they're rooted in what we experience now. Like right now in this moment, we live by faith. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We live by faith with the hope of eternal life. And all of that is rooted in the love of God. And it was the love of God that began all of it. John says in his Epistle, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So as a church, as we wind down this, this series, I want us to think about that beautiful chapter and what Paul says about love and, and what it means for us here. What it means for that person that's right next to you. What it means for the person across the room. How do we live out this kind of love with one another? It won't be easy, but Paul calls us to it. And the Holy Spirit of God will help us in it. And so I hope that every time you are with a brother and sister, whether it be in this church, whether it be another church, whether it be someone who doesn't know Christ, you approach that person with what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 13. I want to end just a, with a thought from a, a commentator. I just love what he says here. and 
It just feels the same. It says that the commentator, the pastor, cannot finish writing or talking on this chapter without a sense that, that soiled and clumsy hands have touched a thing of exquisite beauty and holiness. Here, what is true of all Scripture is true in a special measure. That no comment can be adequate to so great a theme, yet no commentator or pastor can excuse himself from the duty of trying to make plain what these matchless words have come to signify. And no Christian can excuse themselves from the duty of trying to show in their life what these words have come to mean. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the beauty of your word. I thank you that you inspired men to write these words through the power of your Holy Spirit. I thank you that that beauty of your word shows up especially in this chapter, one that is read often and talked about often. And Lord, when that happens, I know that we can become familiar with something and it loses its beauty. And I pray, Lord, that that wouldn't happen with this. We know that we only understand what love is because you first loved us. We only know what it is to love because you first reached down into the muck and the mire of our lives and pulled us out. You sent your Son to die on a cross for us so that we would be free of sin, so that we could live life in your presence as a child adopted into your family and experience the love that you pour out upon people. And Father, I pray for every heart in here. I pray that they would understand and know that love. Father, I pray for every heart in here that, that they would understand what 1 Corinthians 13 means when it says that we will see fully even as we now are fully known. There's nothing hidden from you. And you love us. You know every single inch and part of us and you love. May that be such a deep encouragement. And Father, I pray that we would understand that, and from the overflow of that, that we would be able to love others in the same way. I know that we will never do this perfectly. But Lord, we also understand that your Holy Spirit is working in us. Your Holy Spirit and you can do abundantly more than we think or ask. You brought us literally from death to life. And so, Father, I pray that you make us more into the image of your Son, that you would teach us more and more what it means to live out this kind of agape love for others, and that we would be a church that is, is marked not by the things we do, but the motivation behind them. That whether it's in this church or someone who doesn't know Jesus, they would see our behaviors, and they would see our actions, and they would understand it's from this deep love of God and others. Just thank you for what you're working in this place. I pray your blessing over every heart and over every mind here this morning. I thank you for each person who is here. 
Father, I just pray for those who are here who maybe don't know you. Lord, I pray that you would reveal your heart to them. You would reveal your love for them. Father, that they would understand that every every morning when they wake up and they have breath in their lungs, that's your grace over their life. And that they would turn to Jesus and experience this love in a greater way. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.